Good evening, y'all. It is wonderful to sit here with you again. We got a good show tonight. My name is Clifford Brooks, and this is September 2022's Dante's Old South. On this gig, we've got Leah Song and Chloe Smith of Rising Appalachia here to talk about their career in new music. Right after that, we have author, poet, and professor Carmen Acevedo Butcher here to talk about her brand new book. All the music you hear tonight will be from Rising Appalachia. And all the information that you garner and the stories that you hear will be true and from the heart. So buckle up, y'all. Let's jump in with both feet. And now on Dante's, we have the Calliope and Cleo of Rising Appalachia, Leah Song, and Chloe Smith. How are y'all doing this evening? Good, good. Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. It's wonderful to see you, and uh, I wish that the fans could as well. The, um, the, the family atmosphere that you create as a band, um, it's, in, it's intense and it's also um, a lulling safety. And folks are flocking back out now that the gates are open to see y'all live. So I want to begin there with your new stuff, the things that are on the horizon, the things that now bring us out of the home and uh, safe to breathe around and dance with one another. Uh, what tours do you have up and uh, what new music do you have coming out? Yeah, we um, we were just kind of lamenting about how much we missed the live shows and how good it is to be back in a live room. And uh, we've got, we just finished our biggest tour up to date just a few days ago, but it launches us into a full season. So we'll be in Colorado uh, this month and we'll be at the Park City Folk Festival, which we're very excited about. We wrap a tour down into Florida, end in Miami, and we have a full-length live collaborative album coming out pretty soon uh, that we recorded down in New Orleans with Prez Hall and at the Prez Hall Preservation Hall, which is one of the country's greatest and oldest jazz clubs. So yes. all this body of new material and just kind of the spirit of being back in the world of creativity is is kind of teeming all around us. We're we're excited. In, in the uh, the collaborative sense, who are you, you who are you collaborating with? Well, Prez Hall was a pretty big one. Um, mm -hmm. we're, we're working with two of the brass players down there uh -huh. um, that are both absolutely legendary. Yes. We're also working on a pop folk series of covers where we're not necessarily collaborating with the artists that are the authors of these songs, but covering material that's very different uh, for our repertoire. So we're doing uh, some James Blake is on there and Chloe, who else is on the, on our pop run? Uh, well, we're covering Hozier and Moses and Sufian Stevens. So that should be fun. Yeah. Um, we also have this really big project that we started with five, there's five of us, five women, um, in the music industry and we're releasing an album with those women mm -hmm. in, in the winter. Um, and they were part of a songwriting group that we were in during the lockdown time for a year and a half. So what was rewarded to us by not touring in the past couple of years was more time to record 
And so there's a lot of ideas. There's a new RA album we hope to work on. You know, there's just, there's been more spaciousness to reach out to friends and family members and just different people and work on music. And we, we have more music coming out actually than we ever have, <laughs> which I think is because we were off the road for a little while and we definitely miss touring and it's been great to get back on the road, but it can be a little difficult to juggle both. And so now we're kind of sitting on a lot of songs that we haven't released because we were, we were able to be in the studio more, which felt, um, it actually felt like really deep, deep time, deep creative time for us. When you write, <clears throat> when you sit down to write songs, um, I often ask the question, uh, poetry and songwriting, um, if there was something closer in family than brother and sister, I believe that that's what these two things would be. When you write songs, what elements of poetry go into it or how do you see those two connecting or interweave? Yeah, someone also asked me that. I think it's such there's a there's a distinction between poetry and songwriting, although they're mm -hmm. definitely siblings or related. Yeah. But I I write poems and Leah does too that are not meant for song. They're not meant right, right. for music. They're just I hear them very differently. They're meant to be spoken or read quietly in the privacy of someone's home. And then there's there's <laughs> lyrics that come through that are very much dependent on the music to sort of lift them up and it's it's been really interesting to have to to dabble between the two and to know that to sort of try to know the difference between the two mm -hmm. um and you know on our last album it's called the last the lost mystique of being in the know yeah which was our sort of covid lockdown album which was fun <laughs> we actually it wasn't lyrically um, driven for the first time Mm -hmm. um, but instead of Lee and I writing a bunch of lyrics, we actually like pulled poetry, little pieces of poetry from our journals and kind of expanded upon those for the lyrics, which is why if you listen to that album, it's a little more abstract and lilting and um, a little less defined than some of our other work. And that's because it was more it was more lo loosely based on poetic writing. Um, but they're both. They're both important in our lives, creative lives. Well, I would just say, maybe I shouldn't finish the thought, but my favorite thought between the relationship of the of the poem and the song is just the simplicity of that old Bob Dylan quote, where I think he says something along the lines of, anything I can sing, I call a song. Anything I can't sing, I call a poem. And I've always loved that because they are, they are, they are close, but they're not the same... They're not the same creative expression. And I like where they both live in the in the mind. And it, the whimsy and the uh, the the musicality that's uh, almost a free jazz from the more tightly kept music. That's that's always free. It's always free with y'all. The creative is there, but the business, the business is also there. Because not only did you write and then you put together and you perform your music, that you give it that soul, spirit, and song, but you also got behind it, produced it, and sold it and marketed it. Um, that is that is a rare attribute to be able to sit down and uh, create the car and drive it as well. Uh, tell us the nuts and bolts behind that, please. <laughs> it is a rare attribute and, you know, <laughs> something that we're both really proud of and also has had its its wear and tear. Um, I think Chloe and I started Rising Appalachia 
as grassroots as you could possibly imagine. And it was it was literally a front porch project. We literally had just hundreds of ideas about how to make creative art and theater, how to produce weird underground gatherings where somebody would be painting a mural and somebody would be standing on a on a soapbox reading poems and someone else would be doing trapeze and we would be playing the music and you know the whole thing was built on the back of just this concept of art being our primary language and I think from the very beginning that not only fueled us but also without even being intentional was a very successful business model. I think that we just wanted our hands in everything. The stage lighting looked like, what a poster, what the texture of the paper of the poster would be, you know, how we would write a set list, what instruments would be on stage. I am very driven by visuals. We, we come from a, a family of, of creatives and I think we wanted our hands in every piece of it. Uh, and that just started working. And then we began to do the studies and, and apply a lot more of the business sense uh, that we needed to understand how to operate and run a business, how to you know, be involved in the overhead costs of things, how to steer in a way that felt financially savvy, but also energetically savvy, which has always been very important to us too. The music industry will ring you out, you know, and, and we saw that quickly and said, well, if we steer things in these slightly more designed ways, we could save a little here, but we'd also be more energized here. We could give back more in this direction. And, and that just grew real slowly over time. Um, mostly out of experiential learning, failing, trying again, uh, testing out the waters, recognizing what, what parts of the industry are actually just disasters waiting to happen, fine-tuning a few things around there, trying and failing again. And I think that puts us at about, about the present day now. <laughs> <laughs> Chloe, how do you fit into that? Yeah, it's all true. And, um, you know, a caveat or addition is just our, a lot of the women in our lives were the head of their households, more or less. I mean, there's a loose term of that, but our mom was a working mother and our grandmother was just this very fierce woman. <laughs> and I think obviously that was distilled in, instilled into us, distilled, um, and so when we were young and we, you, there, there's a reality of the music industry that is very much still run by men and plenty of them do a fine job, but a lot of them don't. And there can be some manipulation across the board. And I think that we were pretty fiercely independent from, um, from an early stage. And so we were skeptical kind of of like saying yes to things, even when they were offered to us. And we, there was a desire in both of us to learn the ropes and to not just hand over our independence. And it's something I recommend to artists if, and when I'm ever asked to get the chance to like talk to young artists, it's like, don't hand things over easily. It's too mm. easy to just get swept down. They're like, oh, let me tell you all the things I'm going to do for you. And mm -hmm. 
to not have a clue of actually what's going on with your business and to get in debt and all those things. And I'm really thankful to some of our early mentors and family members who were like, you know, if you're going to do this, you should probably learn the ropes. <laughs> right. Exactly. And it served us. Yes. Yeah. I, do you think, um, again, people think, you know, well, you can, you can, uh, spell, or you can do math or, you know, there's, there's no choice. I mean, you don't have to choose. And, and I say that specifically because in the meticulousness that it goes into the lighting and the way that the posters feel, which I, I jive with that on every ounce of my being, I, my people <laughs> am serious, but it's, uh, it, when you, the technical ability that goes into that, and more importantly, the music, the music, um, what crossover or is there any between, you know, being able to keep the numbers and all the details in line and being able to hit and be exact yet loose with your music? Um, well, do you mean like balancing the art with the business? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They're real different archetypes. And to be completely honest, it's a challenge and it's still a challenge. And we're 15 years in to really a lot time. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, it comes down to time management, but also just to not be over consumed by the business right. or over consumed by the art. You really do have to strike a balance. And as we know with balancing, you know, it's never constantly stable. You constantly have to balance. And mm -hmm. so we have to work on that at all times. You know, are we, spending enough time and energy putting uh you know putting ourselves into the creative side of this work or are we doing conference calls and work meetings and all of these things and has how long has it been since we wrote a song and i think any artist who runs their own ship feels that and it's you know it's a slippery slope it's kind of a tightrope and sometimes right. you feel like you're killing it and sometimes you know things fall to the wayside and that's just that's life, I guess. I would also add, I mean, we've talked about it the last couple of weeks, Chloe and I, and I think part of what has worked well for us is that we both have a deep sense of ease and a sense of faith, for lack of a better word. And I mean that in a very loose way. There are immensely powerful, very, very serious type A people, and they can get work done. I think she, both Chloe and I are, we are really at our most powerful place when we are navigating the direction of the waters that we're already in. A lot of time responding. We spend a lot of time sort of steering what's already coming to us as opposed to just driving as hard as we can in the direction of a goal. And I think some people would would have a variety of stances on whether that is a good idea or a bad idea or a recipe for success or disaster. But I think for us, it is, it is literally our kind of moral compass and we both feel that way. And so, so much of our, so, so much of, I think the power of the project has been in our abilities, both of us to just kind of relax and be like, wow, how fascinating that it's going this way how can we respond to that direction? Or like, we never really thought we would be here. And now we are here. What could we, how can we uh, respond or, or create based in these new places? And I am so appreciative of that kind of accidental 
uh, gift that I think we both can give to each other, which is there is ease around things that are supposed to happen happening. I could quote all of that. It would take a really big bumper sticker to hold that, but that <laughs> that's made my entire day. No, it actually makes my job immensely, immensely easy because it, it goes into what, um, what this show and the, and the company that around it, uh, we, we strive for is this redefinition of the new South, um, where there are the roots there, but the, uh, the old hate, the, uh, the old means the old it's, 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 we work it off and we keep it off. And uh, I want to know, again, you've already hit so much on that already. That's it's like lightning in a bottle that I want more people to know about. So in all of that, my question is, how do you see um, your responsibility in the new South and where that, where that entire idea is going? Yeah. I mean, first off, I just love that term, you know, like, such a part of the title of our band, which is Rising Appalachia, is a real similar concept where it's like the the origin is we want the foundation of, of, of our roots, of our heritage, of our lineage, of the land, of the place. And then we want to rise out of it like a fresh shoots, fresh blooms, you know, and take kind of the foundation and start to learn how to use the foundation as a resource for, for greater learning and greater good. And I, I think that is such a piece of the identity that so many Southerners have, is this immense sense of pride and beauty and honor and, and elegance at, in the South, and also this, this deep, deep shadow and this very intense struggle with how to um, exercise some of the some of the hauntings that have happened in this region, some of the deep, deep tragedies of the human stain. And I, I really admire and and look to so many role models and leaders who are having these conversations, which, like Chloe said about balance, is not something in stasis. It is it is conversations, it is showing up and asking questions and listening and figuring out how to grow the region and, you know, at its highest potential. And we have been longstanding members of an organization called Alternate Roots, which it has been many, 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 too many years since we've been able to be with them in person, but it's a legendary project that talks and deals and educates a lot about Southern art and, and the role of art as catharsis, also art as a tool for education, art as a tool for, you know, undoing racism or food justice, awkward and, and hard conversations. And I think that work and that organization was very pivotal to Chloe and, and myself and to the entire organism of Rising Appalachia, which is, you know, what part of this can we, what part of this can we lean into? And I think our, our relationship with the, with the new South, like you said, at, at this point has a lot to do with small, quiet, humble conversations, you know, with figuring out how to be a good neighbor and, and figuring out how to retell stories uh, that need retelling. And what's your story on this, Miss Chloe? 
I was just gonna say touche, but I could chime in. <laughs> All that. <laughs> Duly noted. But also I love the South. I love being from the South and I love Southerners. And you know, I'm happy to live here. I'm happy to see it grow. I'm happy to see people moving here. I love my country neighbors. Like, you know, and it's not all good at all times, but I think it's a region that has a lot to offer. And it, you know, it, and it has a, uh, I hope that it has a bright future and, you know, and matures and offers its incredible art and offers healing to people who are wounded by this place. You know, there's just, there's so many layers to a region and it's so much dependent on who you are and where you come from and where your family comes from and your own experience. So, um, yeah, I just, I, I'm, I'm excited for the South to be totally honest. I see a lot of, of, of good energy coming here and I see a lot of good things already established here. And I'm, I need to be optimistic because the, you know, as we know, the country is struggling and the world's struggling and, you know, trying to see, all the work that people are doing, the good work is a lifeline for me and for a lot of us. So I, I try to focus on the good work that a lot of Southerners are doing. And, you know, now that we're back out in the world, I really look forward to building new partnerships with people and learning about what's been going on underground for the past couple of years. Like, I feel like we are also just sort of re-emerging. Right. And I'm excited to see what comes out of comes out of all of this time well for us to get a a piece of this phoenix that you are um tell us where we can find you online to keep up with your new music and your tour dates please yeah risingappalachia.com lists all of our tour dates and you can buy tickets there we're on all the socials so the socials and youtube and you know, all the things, they're sort of never-ending things. But if you just put in Rising Appalachia, you'll find all sorts of music. And if you want to be on our mailing list for sort of more direct communication, uh, you can sign up there on our website. We have a Patreon. We have all sorts of things going on. But the biggest thing is listening to the music, sharing the music. Um you know, just kind of, that's what we do. We're musicians. So find the music. And if you like it or think someone would like it, pass it around. All right. All right. All right. Now we'll move on. But before we do, I want to give a heartfelt thank you to both Leah Song and Chloe Smith of Rising Appalachia. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thanks so much. And before our next guest, let's hear a song of theirs, Filthy Dirty South.
Carmen Acevedo Butcher, an internationally acclaimed speaker, author, educator, poet, and translator of spiritual texts. Carmen, how are you today? I'm great, Cliff, and thank you for having me on. It's such an honor and a delight. Um, it's a it's, it's a unique pleasure to have you on because you're the uh, the first uh, on this show who has shared uh, shorter college experiences the same as I. And um, we met on LinkedIn, and um, I you know as many people know on LinkedIn they're trying to sell you everything under the sun. And this was one of the few times that someone genuine reached out on that platform. And uh, it's an honor to have you on. Uh, your book, Practice of the Presence, um, is going to be featured in the fall issue of the Blue Mountain Review for very good reasons, because it's it's brilliant. Um, but before I dig into that, um, let's get back to the beginning. Um, how did you come to translate, Brother Lawrence? Well, that is such a good question, Cliff. So many years ago, when I started teaching at Shorter College, mm-hmm. that we both have such uh, fond memories of people like Wilson and Thelma Hall and, and others, mm-hmm. I began to try to write and different things. And Phyllis Tickle helped me to have a connection at Paraclete Press. And there I met Lil Copan. So we did a, a book together. And then years later, we did another book and then time passes, you know how it does. Right. And she kept emailing uh, me very kindly and saying, would you like to do another book? But I really didn't have the bandwidth because, first of all, my father died. And also we had some losses in our family in other ways. And then we moved, you know, I left my position of teaching at Shorter, and we moved to California. And, you know, there's no way to go from one coast to another coast without that taking up a lot of bandwidth. Right. But then in the fall, in the um, spring, rather, of 2020, about the time I was shifting to teach online because of the pandemic, my friend Lil sent me another message, kind of like what you're talking about, a genuine, kind friend reaching out on social media said, hey, want to talk books? And I thought, you know, yes. And so Lil is like you. She's a genius. And she just knows so much about books and bookmaking and writing. And she threw out all these possibilities. Mm -hmm. And at the very, I was like, okay. And I was taking all these notes And at the very end, she goes, oh, it was kind of almost a throwaway. And then there's Brother Lawrence and something in me. It was kind of like with the cloud of unknowing, Mm -hmm. something tugged. And I said, oh, and I, but I played my poker (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, you're going to keep you, you know, you got to, you got to ease into things. And so I said, said, yeah, that sounds, yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, okay. So I wrote down Brother Lawrence, but actually what I saw in my mind was practice of the presence and then eventually just presence, kind of like an old neon sign in the 1950s uh, movie, like with detectives and everything. Yeah. And and so I thought to myself, I'm not going to tell Lil, but I'm absolutely sort of obsessed with the practice of the presence, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure if Brother Lawrence, who's from the 17th century in France, I'm not sure if his theology is healthy enough for me to spend that kind of intimate time with it. I mean, Jhumpa Lahiri talks about 
how translating is the most intimate form of reading. It's kind of like a, you know, it's a, it's a hug of, a, of a writer, right? You know, and so without telling my editor, I spent the first pandemic summer, I was, I was teaching full-time online public speaking, mm-hmm. and I was translating the rough draft. And all I can tell you, Cliff, is that as I translated, not only was his theology healthy, but it was healing for me. And so every morning I would get up about four in the morning. Cause you know, if you're teaching, you know how it is when you're juggling things. Yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're teaching full time, you don't get up at 10 o'clock and just dally through the day. So I'm up at four and going to my computer and I'm thrilled, mm-hmm. thrilled. Yeah. And so it fed me even during the times where I had students telling me their parents had died. Yeah. One of my very best friends, one of her parents died in the pandemic and the news was filled with people around the world with that. And it was the quietest time on the roads. California was going through lockdown. Yeah. And instead what we had on the roads at 4 a.m. at 4 a.m. I don't know if the birds have a watch or a little clock or what it is <laughs> they have, but there would be this bird song, no cars, no cars all day, uh-huh. but bird song. And I would translate along with this soundtrack, which was birdsong. And it was almost, it was strangely hopeful. It was just strange. It was just also just very strange. And it fed my soul. And so four months later, uh, I say to Lil, uh, can we, the editor, my editor friend, can we meet? And she goes, yeah, sure. And so I said, well, I've translated it. And um, I said, I really would love to do this. But then of course, you know, you also have to to um present your book to the publisher. I mean, it's yep. not just like you waltz. <laughs> so right. so I had to put together a proposal and and it was funny because you know a good editor will do this. In the proposal, I had this one sort of throwaway paragraph where I talked about how I came to understand the practice of the presence myself, which was through childhood trauma. And sort of like Mary Oliver, the poet, talks about, she would escape her house and she yeah. would go walking through nature. And so that's in the red dirt of Georgia that I love with the red-tailed hawks, as you know, in northwest Georgia mm-hmm. and the oxide daisies. And I would go out into nature and the practice of the presence started praying in me kind of as a gift. Right. And I had written in the proposal this one paragraph about that. Just thinking, I was just trying to get their the attention and please take my book. Yeah. And so when it came time to put the book together, and of course the the revisions, you'll appreciate this as a poet and prose and all kinds of genres writer. You'll appreciate. I mean, there was a lot of revising. Right. So there was revising of a year to a year and a half after that first four months. But Lil found that paragraph and said. You tell me, but she said, I think this works as an opening. And I was like, smack me, you know, awake. Yeah. That is, I would never, ever, you know, this is Cliff, why we need friends. Yes. Because we can't, I just, I can't see some things. Me either. I feel you. you know? I mean, yeah, I do. So, you have to have a great editor. The editors, they're, they're like family. You know, yeah, they, they're, that's it. That, <laughs> you know it. You know it. So that's how, that's really how it, initially came about was it kind of it fed my soul during that 
during that time. And one day I realized that no, no one would want, uh, obviously no one would want a pandemic. And yet I was um, commuting to Berkeley two hours one way on bad days, an hour and a half one way on good days. Right. And so that was three to four hours commute a day, five days a week. And those five hours while I was teaching, because I was teaching full time when I translated and wrote this book. And those five hours went into the book, my old commute time. So, you know, but de- but definitely I would I would give it back to not have a pandemic. That's true. That's true. And yeah. there, there's a there's a consequential guilt that I hear in your voice that I felt as well as an artist during the pandemic, because people, as it is in every desperate time, they, when locked up, they look for things to read and to watch and to be a part of. And so coming out of that and people say, oh my God, it's miserable. We absolutely agree with that, but that there was something beautiful that cropped from it because not only did people during the great depression and great world wars write these things that last, they they last because there's something desperate in there, not in a negative way, but to connect. To, to, and to reconnect. So, I mean, you picked probably the most difficult way to do that. So let me ask you this. Why translations? That is such a wise question, Cliff. I appreciate you, you asking it because it really goes to the heart of what I hope to um, try to be, at least as a human. Translation for me you have to get yourself out of the way in some way. So it's going to, this is going to be a contradictory answer. The first thing I loved about translation, like with the cloud of unknowing that I did with Shambhala, is that I had to step out of the way enough. It's almost like what when I read, and you know, I've been to therapy and to counseling. It's almost what I read when you have a good counselor or a good therapist, they know how to move out of the way to give you space to talk and then they bring them their whole selves there. But when somebody's listening to you, there's a certain way that they move themselves out of the way to give you space. It doesn't mean that they negate themselves, but they give you space. So one of the things I love about being a translator is that I get to move myself out of the way and listen to Anonymous for the Cloud of Unknowing and listen to Brother Lawrence and also his friend Joseph of Beaufort in the mm-hmm. case of Practice of the Presence. So I love the fact of listening. And then the other thing is it really has helped me discover the gold in my shadow. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely have the shadow in my shadow also, mm-hmm. uh, as we all do. But one of the things I've had difficulty with also in life is just in general seeing the parts of me that are. Uh, sensitive and valuable. And so when I started translating uh, Brother Lawrence, I was like, dang, I do that. (laughs) And it was like, like, I've always done that. And then there's another sort of level. This is where the contradictory part comes, where in addition to the second point just then, is that it helps me to heal and to become more my true self. Mm So in other words, and I know for sure, I don't want to assume Cliff, but we're, we've talked enough that you've had this, you have this experience and have had it, that words are healing. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And entering into a translation, I read tons of good history books. Right. I read tons of dictionaries from the 16, 1700s. I went to the originals in the National Library of France in the French. Mm-hmm. I get to look into the OE, the Oxford English Dictionary, the OED, mm-hmm. and I get to fully immerse myself in ways into words and their etymologies. Yes. And so as somebody with dyslexia, mm-hmm. um, being able to immerse myself into the histories of words and into beautiful language and then to try to bridge the gap between the centuries and the cultures and give its faithful, accurate, and also engaging spirit to today is very healing. It really is meditative. Mm -hmm. It's healing. I don't know any other way to put it. Even on a bad day when life is like just maybe there's a lot going on in teaching. And I don't mean that's a bad day, but what I'm saying, even in a busy day, right? or even when things aren't going all the way I want them to, when I turn to the translating, it never disappoints. I come away feeling refreshed Mm -hmm. and somehow healed really. Yeah. Um, so that's really why translation is, it's almost like if you presented me with some delicious chocolate, right. I, know, I, I, I like to argue that chocolate is an antioxidant. Mm-hmm. Some people just don't see it that way. I also like to argue that chocolate is a vegetable, you know, cause it comes from yeah. a bean, but, yeah. but I would say if you gave me some chocolate, there's no way I'm turning it down. And translating is the same. It's just, it's just Moorish. Yeah. It always feels yeah. good. It always yeah. feels good. Yeah. Well, That's it. as you already mentioned, like driving to Berkeley, you're a teacher and you've, you've always been by soul and by, by occupation. How is teaching students, uh, the, 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 the adults of tomorrow, how have they influenced, uh, your want and your need to translate? Well, the students that I teach are both brilliant and wise because they want to contribute to the common good and they want to take care of the planet Mm -hmm. and they want to have more sensitivity to each other. And they're much more, um, how can I say they're much more, they're much wiser than people may assume who don't deal on a daily basis really with what is often called Gen Z. So generation Z or the, right. And one of the things that it did for me was I translated wanting this book to be read by my students. So what are they concerned about my students? They're concerned that people love each other and that we have an economic system that works for everyone and that we have sort of a collective good. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that they are thinking about is love is love is love. And how do we speak with each other? What do what do people need from each other? And so the whole time I translated, I'm thinking my students are also very diverse. Right. I have all of the all of the countries in my classroom Uh and all of the cultures. Uh And so. The other thing was when I finished translating and I met with my editor, I told her the only difficulty I'd had with the translation. So I wanted to present all of Brother Lawrence, 
the first time for a wide ranging audience, all of Brother Lawrence is there. Nothing is left out. Right. That's a first. Mm -hmm. And then I also wanted to present Brother Lawrence as the down to earth, accessible mystic he is because he's just talking about turning to love in micro moments of the day. And that's practicing the presence. Yes. He is not binary. He doesn't talk about good versus evil. Right. He talks about God as love. Right. And, and what I love about this book and Aldous Huxley talks about it is that people have read it who come from all faith traditions, from all wisdom traditions and people who are like, I'm stoic or yeah. I'm atheist right. or I'm nothing, you know, they love Brother Lawrence. He's very, I was speaking with a, a Buddhist Lama yesterday, and she said, he is so Zen. Uh -huh. You know, I mean, it's it's just, he's very, he's very wise. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I told my editor was, the, uh, you know, I wanted this to be accurate. Uh -huh. I wanted to include everything. And I wanted to be as representative of the love God that Brother Lawrence has. And not this binary good versus evil, because right. he says Bonte, he says God is kind a lot. Right. So one of the things that I hadn't been able to do was Brother Lawrence does use he for God. I don't quite relate to uh, God as he, right. although I tried for many years and not really even so much, although I went through a phase of God is she like Julian of Norwich. Right. And so one morning I got up at four in the morning and the birds were singing and there was no other noises. and. Um, after I'd told Lil, the only thing was I couldn't figure out how to have God with no pronouns or with more inclusive or whatever that would be. Right. And I woke up the next morning, Cliff, and there was they. And I was like, whoa, what is this? And it just really came uh, from nowhere. And then I thought, knowing the people in my life who um, prefer and identify with they pronouns right. and my students, I thought, Wow. And then, you know, you can't just do a global search and replace with pronouns. So I went through and then I thought maybe I can make the translation also where people who've never under uh, had someone in their life who or taught someone who uses they as their pro preferred pronouns where they could learn how that works. So that's what I did. And <clears throat> it feels more comfortable for me just in general, because God is such mystery. and. It also represents Brother Lawrence's lived theology because he's a Trinitarian right. and it's just more inclusive. Now, if uh, you know, I'm not saying this is the way the whole world should do it at all. Um, it's just this is what happened in my experience with translating it. And I really hope my students see it and think, oh, this is this is more this is a Christianity with more inclusivity and love. Right. I'm hoping. And I know they will because I've read it. I've read it and then it, they don't, it doesn't ever state itself. The minute you try to make it about they, that, that I am doing, that's when it loses its meat. You know what I'm saying? And it, it, it's, yeah. it's comfortable because of the way you divined, no pun intended, the reason to do it. You know, it, it's, it's true. It's true. Carmen, before I let you go, how can we find you online? And not more importantly, but as importantly, how can we find your book to buy it? Okay. Thank you, Cliff. I appreciate mm -hmm. the chance. My website that um, my kind husband helped me make is www.carmenbutcher.com. So it's just if you Google Carmen Butcher, mm -hmm. it'll come up with a .com after it. 
And on that page, you can go to, it's like on the front page, there's a lot of indie bookstores and also mm -hmm. Amazon, everywhere you can get the book. And then also you can go to Broadleaf because Broadleaf Books is who's, is who's publishing it. But definitely, or you can go to my social media. If you just look for Carmen Acevedo yeah. Butcher, yeah, you can, um, because I have a link tree, uh -huh. you know, that's kind of like a cool thing to do these days. Yeah. So I have, I mean, I'm learning, you know, Cliff, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not, I'm not as, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to keep up with, with the You're DMZ. You're doing a fantastic job, I promise. But it's link tree and it's Carmen Acevedo Butcher. So wherever, wherever they want to just kind of throw it out into the vast uh, cyberspace, they can find me and the book. Good, good. Because if they if they, it wasn't that easy, I would make it that easy. Because this book is worth the time to find it and worth the time to sit with it. And in this life, that's that's hard to say. But um, we'll have you back on because you're you're stuck with me because you're also in the company and writing for the Blue Mountain Review. Um, Carmen Acevedo Butcher, we're going to have you back on really really soon. And I hope you enjoyed your moment here with me. Thank you, Cliff. It's been really an honor. And I feel really an it's an honor to be also in the Southern Collective experience. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining September 2022's Dante's Old South. I am your host, Clifford Brooks. And I want to give a huge shout out and show of love to our guests, Leah Song and Chloe Smith of Rising Appalachia, as well as Carmen Acevedo Butcher, here to talk about her new book that you really need to check out. Before I wind down, I want to thank also WUTC and NPR for their support and love over the years. Thank you, Richard Winham, for getting the show on the air, and Michael Amade for polishing this bad boy to a shine. Y'all have a wonderful week, a beautiful month, and we'll see y'all back here in October. But before I let you go, let's hear the brand new track from Rising Appalachia. Thank you very much.
Tell you.